Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot, where we are learning leadership lessons from your favorite stories. Hi, I'm Brian Nutwell. And I'm Drew Perot. And we are on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brains better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. We're back with part two of the Shawshank Redemption. In part one, we continue talking about the limit break recipe, looking at how Red is able to break limits. And one of the things that we talked about is how Red is kind of stuck in this rigid system until he has an Andy figure in his life who helps to break him free of that system. And how does Andy do it? Andy initiates a limit break and shows Red and some of the other inmates that hope exists and that limit breaks are possible for them too. So in part two, we're going to talk about Andy as the magnanimous leader. One of the biggest takeaways when you watch this movie for the first time is how inspiring Andy is and how you kind of wish you could be Andy, but maybe you feel like that's too far of a stretch and that Andy is a fictional character that nobody can really achieve. But this story here is great because it starts out showing us Andy as a real piece of work. In his outside world life before he ever goes to prison, he doesn't seem to have a lot of friends. He doesn't have a good relationship with his wife. He has a lot of money and success, quote unquote, but he's really stuck in an institutionalized mindset of his own. And it's only when he incorrectly is sent to prison, when he enters the small world, that the small world of Shawshank Prison actually proves to be the big world that we usually look for in the hero's journey as the hero is learning to grow and adapt and engage in some sort of a limit break. Andy goes through a number of limit breaks here as he grows and becomes more and more magnanimous. Andy pays the little costs every day by sending the letter, by moving the dirt. And he pays the big costs too. He's not afraid to take a beating or to go into the hole if it means shedding hope on others in the prison and helping them to see that there's something outside of their current mindset. Andy has a clear vision, and it's bold too. His vision of being in Mexico with a wide blue sea in a very specific location is not something general that he knows will never be achievable. And that's applicable to us as we look at this and seek to be Andy ourselves. As we engage with this question, can we really be Andy? We want to understand, you know, what does it take? What is the process and the boxes that one would really have to check to move from what we talked about in part one being like red, where we might feel like today, to becoming truly magnanimous like Andy. Welcome to Wonder Tour. Welcome back, everyone. Shawshank Redemption part two. This is Brian. I'm here with Drew, and we have a special guest and OG Wonder Tour gangster, Derek Cobb, on the phone as well. Welcome back, Derek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back. <laughs> Isn't that how I'm supposed to talk? <laughs> Something like You're that. No I don't know. We're, we, may, <laughs> we, may be the, we may be the least hype podcasters of all time, so I, I won't judge. <laughs> well, maybe you just needed a little hype there. Exactly. Maybe I had, I to, like be, right. maybe I had to be your Andy for a second, you know? That's all what right. I'm thinking. So, uh, you, you, you're boom, you're boom, always boom. my Andy, Derek. And if you know what? If you, if you listen to episode one, creamy, corn, creamy... <laughs> Green, I gotta say, beans. I gotta say, I I, I I slightly prefer the two Italian ladies singing, but that's okay. <laughs> I don't know if Derek oh. has a good enough impression of that though. But what if we what if we make that Italian creamy <laughs> corn cream? I stand corrected. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> Fabulous. All right, I'm inspired. That's it. I'm gonna go out and break some limits right now. I'm I'm off.
So I'm going to tag on something that Drew said in the intro here, right, is that one of the things that struck me about this story rewatching the movie recently was the specificity of Andy's vision for the future. He wasn't, you know, it was like, okay, prison sucks and I want to get out of prison. Like, of course, right? Everybody, everybody has that reaction. That's the whole point of prison is that it stinks. But he wasn't just like, I want to escape. He was like, I want to escape and move to this very specific place on this beach in Mexico where I'm going to have a little hotel and a charter old boat that I fix up and take people out fishing on. The specificity of that makes it very easy to embrace, makes it very easy to understand why it would be good and to work towards where... Oftentimes, I think broader goals are like, oh, I'd like to make more money or I'd like to not be in this crappy environment anymore. or I'd like to be happier aren't necessarily that they don't drive you to action in the same way. So I want to kind of hear what you guys think about that. How important is that? And are there examples you can think of where that call to action was clear enough or motivational enough that it might make a difference? I think that's absolutely the key. And I think it's because you start to list out details that you need to take care of instead of being very generalistic, general, generalized in your plans. If you start oh. to get very specific, you start to consider how these things are related to each other. And it forces you, it finally forces you to think about the escape plan and that the escape plan has many parts. It's not just get through the wall. You got to do all the other things too. And you have to consider up and down the pipeline what you're going to do. And I think it also gives you that we were talking about it in the last episode, hope, right? So I think that's kind okay. of okay. Yeah. So the limit break requires you to to do the work, but to do that, you need some specific actions to take. And it's really it's a lot easier to construct specific actions towards a specific goal. I like that. It put me in mind of um, I read an interview a couple of years ago about a British woman who was the first woman to row solo across the Atlantic in a boat, not a sailboat, but a human powered boat. And she was like an MBA accountant in London somewhere. And she had this crazy idea, like, nobody's ever done this. I'm going to be the first woman to do it. And she and she said, I'm not good at a lot of things, but I'm really good at making detailed plans. And so I just started writing down all the things that I would need to learn and be able to do in order to do this. And she's like, well, all the individual things on that list are things that I can do. <laughs> so she just started doing them. Wow, that's great. That's a perfect example too, Brian. How do we tie this into the limit break recipe here? Because in our first step of the limit break, we have this internal dissatisfaction that is coupled with an external mission. And I think there's a vision piece that we need to tie in here somehow, because as you pointed out, the specific vision allows for you to come to a more clear realization, which allows you to then create alignment. Clear vision is easier to get alignment on than a obscure vision, right? If, if the vision is obscured for the company, it's really hard to get alignment because everybody's kind of taking and interpreting the tea leaves a little bit differently for themselves. And so you don't get agreement on, okay, well, we have to do this to go forward. And thus, these are the costs that we have to pay. Yeah, if it's too vague, you can't, it's harder to align with. So I, th yeah, I think you're right. The place you hang the vision is the alignment step, right? Is you want to align your internal actions with not just the current external world, but the external world that you're striving to reach or create depending on your situation. But that, you know, in our four-step model where the first step is the dissatisfaction and having kind of the high-level mission, but the second step is the realization and alignment. Like, what are the details and what is it that I need to do and what is it I can do? I think you're right. The specificity of vision can be really helpful there in knowing what specific actions to take. Like, what are the detailed steps to get to this thing? So that's cool. You got to focus more on the outcomes, though, and not necessarily the risks. I think people fail at 
these type of things, they overestimate the risks. Imagine if Andy were to say, oh, well, but I'll just get caught. Well, the whole thing's just going to fall apart, right? Right. And I've seen so many people that are not good at vision casting because they can't seem to keep their negative detracting self out of the equation. Mm -hmm. And they sink themselves before they even try because they can't seem to make that vision they go too detailed, and I would say detailed is, detail is a double-edged sword. What do you guys say? Absolutely. I know that's a good way to look at it, is that the details can be motivational if they're things you think you can attack. But if you focus on the details of things that could go wrong that you can't do anything about or the things that could go wrong that, you know, that are stacking up, if your game theory is, is basically all risk analysis, the vision has to be compelling enough to overcome that, right? Like I want, I want out of this box bad enough that I'll take the risk or that I'll do the work or that I'll take the beating in two weeks in the hole. But you're right. It's very easy to overweight the costs or the penalties or the risks and be like, well, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty safe in here with these walls. Like I'm pretty sure these, pretty sure these walls are good. Like I get food every day and you know, like I've got some people that I hang out with, like it's probably okay here, right? That's the failure mode. Some people are really hard to be Andy's to, right? And you spend your Andy energy on them and then you regret it because you're mm. like, they don't, they don't want to do it. They keep sympathizing and, ha- and developing a symbiosis with the walls almost, right? Right. That they somehow even keep those walls up. So we're getting a little <sighs> meta into the human aspect. Drew, I just feel like this is your time to bust in and break the wall down in our conversation like the Kool-Aid guy. All right. <laughs> well, that's putting a lot of pressure on me, but I think we can do that. So I want to expound on, before we get too far, what I had to say in the beginning, because I've come to a realization myself as we've gone through this Limit Break series and as I've tried to work and integrate what we've been learning here to all the different rails that I'm running in my life. And that realization is that I think I had given up on the idea of becoming an Andy. So as Derek, you talked about how sometimes it's really hard to when you're an Andy to somebody's red and you just want them to become an Andy too, it's really hard when they don't want to. It's actually impossible. And we see that happening with Tommy, right? The first time Tommy engages with Andy, Tommy's like, I want you to take me and help me get this high school equivalency. And Andy just says, no, I don't take losers. <laughs> and because he's he's like, Tommy, if you're not willing to fight against this, if you're not willing to put to death the previous version of yourself that I'm currently engaging with, then you you won't be able to do it and you're going to let me down and you're going to let yourself down. But I will believe in you if you are willing to do that. If you're willing to lay down your previous self, then I can help you. So to hit this harder, though, I think the challenge moving from episode one about Red to episode two about Andy is to recognize that most of us have accepted being Red. We've accepted that not only as the current state, but as the future state. And I want to challenge everybody here that I have come to the conclusion I don't think we should think that way. I don't think that is the lesson that we should learn from all these stories that we're reading is that all oh, these are fictional tales and the Andes and the Gandalfs and the Doms. Those are just fictional characters that we can never be like. That is not the point. (laughs) The great leaders of all time would beg to differ that you can become like Andy. And that doesn't mean that you're not going to feel like Red some days. But to not aspire to be like Andy with a clear vision, not a general vision of what Andy is, but a clear vision of what it means to be selfless, to help other people, that is magnanimous. 
So to finish this monologue here, I want to redefine magnanimous. I know we're 89 episodes into this show, but I think it's time to create a delineation on magnanimous. Magnanimous to me is not the I'm doing better than the person next to me. I'm helping more people than the person next to me. Magnanimous is transcending to the Andy level of leadership where you are selfless. The things that you do are integrated. They have a high integrity. You have compassion on people, even when those people don't love themselves or don't believe in themselves. You inspire hope in the people around you by the limit breaks that you initiate. So I don't know, guys, what do you think about that? <laughs> Absolutely. That I think what we see in this movie and in a lot of these, a lot of these movies with the leaders that we really love. The magnanimous leader has this sort of inspirational, selfless, like, I'm going to take these actions that are good for the people around me. I am serving as an example, like we said, with Gandalf or the Dom, like getting down in the trenches and doing the dirty work with people when needed, but also being willing to go to the next step. But the other point to like what to what you and to what Derek said was that to realize that the whole point of being an inspirational leader, that inspiring more Andes or inspiring more Reds to take their own steps is to realize you can't do it for them. Right. And he doesn't break Red out of the prison. He breaks himself out of the prison and says, Red, when you get out, here's what you got to do for your limit break if you want to join me. Right. He transcends. He does his thing and he leaves the message behind. And so we get to see in this case, we get to see Red. If not for that interaction, Red is Brooks. He gets out. He has no idea how to survive outside the institution. He hangs himself from the you know halfway house and we're done, right? But he doesn't, he doesn't buy the gun. He doesn't buy the rope. He buys the compass, right? His talisman is like, oh, I can find my way out here. I believe it because, not only because I saw somebody do it, but because I've got a specific goal. I want to get down to Mexico and find my friend. Even a diminished version of the specific vision is enough to get people moving. But that sense that, like like Derek, like you said, you don't know in advance the people that you're interacting with, the people that you're trying to inspire, the people that you're sharing your energy with. You don't know which of them are going to pick up the torch. You don't know which of them are going to go by a compass and which of them are going to retreat inside the walls. I think the main thing that you got to keep in mind with Andy is probably a good Talladega Nights quote that never was. And now I'm going to chat GPT you right now. If you ain't leading, you're losing. <laughs> and <laughs> so I, I want think to, if, yeah, if Andy didn't commit right to leading at a certain follow distance, and I think that's what a magnanimous leader does is commits to a certain follow distance that is something that someone can keep up with, right? And a true leader will actually only look back just to make sure that the people who are following him are still following. Because if you ain't leading, you're losing. Shake and bake. Back to you. Nice. So yeah, so I want to actually. Let's cap this off. There was an anecdote I wanted to share, but talking about the difference between leaders and managers, right? Between moving the ball forward and keeping the structure <laughs> erect. So this is a, a thing you used to say only half jokingly in the operations and change management role was that if you think about the organization as an organism, managers are the white blood cells. Their job is to reject change, right? <laughs> Typically people promoted into positions of mid-level management are there because they've been successful at the previous job in the current structure and they've gotten promoted to the, okay, great. Now your job is to make sure everybody else knows what the structure is and can keep it going, can keep the system running, can keep the flywheel turning. On balance, that's not a bad thing. Like most organizations, if they've grown, it's because their system works at least reasonably well and they need to keep the flywheel turning. But the failure mode of that is that people that are successful in the system aren't the ones who put it in place in the first place. They're the ones who thrived under those rules, and they tend to enforce the rules. 
And the failure mode is you turn into Hadley. You turn into, I'm enjoying the system because it's been good to me, and I'm going to enforce that the system cannot change. And so if you're a free radical, if you're, if you're you know, the virus that's trying to introduce a new behavior pattern, all of the, the people who are in management roles, the people who are in mid-level leadership roles, the people who are bought in the system will reflexively reject you. They will fight against you. They will try to shut you down. And it's not because they're bad people. It's because that's their job. And so one of the challenges of the magnanimous leader is to figure out how to inspire them, how to give them a vision of what could be better, about how the system could evolve in a direction that would be better for their people and better for the larger organism. So the the gap between management and leadership, like is if you're if you're doing the white blood cell job, you're a manager. Like you're keeping things from screwing up. Like we talked about risk management, like you're just looking at the details and making sure nothing goes wrong at a micro level. The leader job is to have the specific motivational vision, is to say, this is the beach in Mexico that we're trying to get to, like, and it's possible, and to show that you're doing the work, and to be showing actions that are supporting the people around you and trying to make their lives better. And that's that's a really hard lift, right? It's a really heavy lift to do to do what Andy does. But if you do it in spurts, well, you start to get some other people pulling on the rope, maybe. And how do we do that? Well, like we keep saying, it's by initiating iterative limit breaks. That's how we build up hope. I almost wish we had had the limit break series before the hope series, but I digress. Let's let's wind up to the midpoint of our hike here. Let's hit the mountaintop. So the mountaintop this time is going to be the first moment where we catch a full smile from Andy. And that's when the library uh, or the, the government slash the library sends these boxes of books, they send the Mozart record, they send the check for $200. This is really the first time that we see the dam start to crack here. We see the payoff for all of the cost that Andy has been putting in every day, every week, sending letters, sending letters, and it takes six years for that to happen. But I want to bring in this moment with the library, and I want to liken it to the time that we talked about the library in Beauty and the Beast. And what did we say that the library was? We said it was vibrant. We said there was light in the castle inside the system for the first time in a long time, and we called it the garden. The garden is this state of flourishing that we're seeking to reach for humans. And if that's what we're seeking to reach, the library represents a microcosm of the garden inside of the system of the prison. Yeah, libraries are great metaphors, right? Like they're, you know, it's a it's a place of knowledge. It's a place of information that came from outside. It's a place of self-growth, right? This is a place where you can go and, you know, get your high school diploma and work on work on learning things that you don't already know. It's the kind of thing that you build when you're investing in people. And of course, you know, Shawshank is a prison. Its job is not to invest in people. Its job is to keep the bad people away from society until they've learned their lesson. But Andy's investing in people, right? And he believes that this could be on balance good for society and good for him and good for the people around him. That's a good point. Like every time you see a library in a movie, especially in a dark, forbidding place, like it's always the oasis. It's always the the symbol that things could have been better, that people dreamed big dreams and wrote them down. And isn't it some sort of a limit break infrastructure almost that we're looking for? We see the exact same thing in Beauty and the Beast, the library slash the garden, these moments of symbolism of what the ideal state could be, right? Like the library is almost this precursor to the beach for Andy. It's the proof that the beach exists and that we can engage with the beach even when we're still inside the prison. 
And not only that, getting the limit break to even have the library. Now, truly magnanimous leaders, we can learn something here. Look for limit breaks that create limit break infrastructure. The library creates more limit breaks. It's getting people their GEDs. It's allowing people to eventually they're listening to music in there, right? Music becomes democratized to some extent after the Mozart incident. They get to have beauty inside of these stone walls. And I love that it's it's kind of a callback to our Fast and Furious episode, right? Like Dom's strategy as a magnanimous leader for the entire first half of the movie is gathering information. He's just learning about the world, learning about the environment and educating the people, running the little experiments of how can how fast can I drive the car through the parking garage, right? So this is a whole different flavor of it, but it's the same thing. How do I how do I level up the team? How do I invest in the people around me? But also how do I sort of gain information to think about, you know, and, and Andy's doing the same thing the whole time, right? He's 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 cooking the books, he's running this money laundering scheme, but he's also gaining information about what's really happening inside the prison and looking for the the weak points. I think what you've isolated with the library is a, I'll just describe it literally, it is a space within the system that you can foster growth and iteration and smaller reverberations of what the grander limit break needs to take place, right? And this is where people who run systems that are trying to keep this stuff tamped down, it's very difficult to be able to do that. I think it's tied very deeply to the human spirit in many ways in essence of what it means to be human, you have to have something that you're working on. You always have to have something that you're working on. And I think that if you look across prisons all around the world, whether it's virtual or physical, it doesn't matter in my mind, that there's always some mechanism there in a successful prison that keeps that part of you busy, keeps that part of you, basically keeps you read. And I don't know, what do you guys think about that as these libraries can be used for nefarious purposes as well as noble ones? And I think some of it could be that it's system-derived or system-sponsored versus Rebel Alliance-sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, yeah, the, the Rebel Library, but I like that. It's like, you know, one of the other analogies we use is the dojo, right? The, the library is a place where you can go practice limit breaks. If you can create a physical space or a community where people are practicing their limit breaks, they're practicing putting in the work, they're practicing alignment, they're practicing sharpening their vision and dissatisfactions, yeah, then maybe they're more amenable to the bigger ones or they're more available for the bigger ones. But you're right. The thing that you practice is what you're going to get good at. So organizations will naturally encourage people to practice things that are, you know, aligned with the system. <laughs> they will naturally encourage people, people to practice things that push the, the system forward. And not every human organization is a prison, at least not as the main purpose, right? Like some, some of them are very effective organizations for doing good in the world. They're very effective organizations for harnessing human power, but they all tend to calcify into the system is there for the purpose of the system. And so that, you know, recognizing whether you're using it for subversion, for growth, growth of the people, growth of the organization, or whether you're using it to just sort of lock everybody into their whatever <laughs> Lean Six Sigma boxes or their total quality approved processes. This is absolutely going back to that definition of the magnanimous leader that talks about the dual purpose of just about everything. I think a magnanimous leader has the front game and the back game. We talked about that way back and how the library has a front game and it has a back game, right? And the system has to be kept busy by the front game and the back game is where actually the work is getting done. This is where the dirt's falling down the, the pant leg. This is where 
things are happening, right? Yeah, so, that's the subversion. That's the I'm working on my goals because I have this clear vision of the future. But the magnanimous version of it is it's not just for me, right? It's not just yeah. for it's not just for my benefit. But I recognize that not everything in the system is benefiting people all the time, and some of them needs to be worked around until we're ready to really break them down. Well, because the system is so generalized and refined that it loses and I think is reductionist to individual richness, right? And that's ultimately why you have to have these dojos. You have to have these places because the system is ultimately reductionist. And I, I, I personally, I can't stand that about systems, but that's the nature of systems. If you, if you want to create a system, you have to standardize things and you have to have stability but it doesn't necessarily celebrate the individual, which we always say is like, that's why you have to have a balance of having a system in the first place versus having an individual and a network of people, right? And the magnanimous leader is constantly one foot in each, understanding the system, not necessarily always endorsing the growth of the system, but sometimes it just depends, right? And it comes down to the discernment that a magnanimous leader has that they're not in it for them. And if they're in it for them, then the system grows bigger, right? Or the system gets distorted to benefit them, right? That's, that's what the, I meant to say. That's the, yeah. that's the warden. If you're in a leadership role and you're anchored in the system, but you're changing it solely for your own benefit, then that's a distortion, right? If you're in a leadership role and you're changing the, the system with the intention to benefit others, that's better. If you're changing the system to empower other people to change it for their own benefit, that's really what we're striving for, right? Is that looking for the opportunities to let other people loose on their own visions and their own magnanimous journeys. And that's, again, that's a heavy lift. Is it, you know, we talk about how leaders need to operate at the edges. Another way that we could think about that maybe is a leader needs to be able to operate within the system and also to see above the system. They have to be able to do both of those to truly be magnanimous. Yeah, I think so. I think that there are a lot of people in a lot of situations, their systems aren't necessarily all Shawshank level rigid and punitive. But in general, yeah, if you're if you're going to be a leader, by definition, you're a leader of a community, of a group, of some piece of an organization. And you may be in a formal leadership role or you might just be Andy, right? You might be a person that's at the ground level, but you are the one that has the vision and the willingness to work for change. And the changes that most need to happen are the ones that are visible at the ground level. And they're only amenable to leadership, you know, <laughs> that, that starts with a really authentic experience down there. Like you said at the beginning, when Andy starts, we don't have any evidence that he has successful human relationships, right? He has to get torn all the way down into this subhuman level of being a convicted murderer to be able to build that community and then build his leadership. Okay, so let's get into the takeaways for today. So we kind of started to build up some pillars of a magnanimous limit break. We've done all this work so far on the Limit Break recipe, and now we're working to understand how it integrates with all of the other concepts and themes that we've gone through these different series on Wonder Tour. And we've done it all through this look at this magnanimous leader, Andy, that we all wish that we could be like. So our first takeaway is that Andy's vision is specific, which allows for more specific plans and specific action. And it also allows for alignment across his followers. It's really critical to have a clear vision to be able to inspire people to align with it, as well as to be able to take steps yourself to get towards that limit break. 
Number two, to focus more on the outcomes and not as much on the risks. We didn't touch on this too much, but I do think it's critical to take away from Andy that when you're going for a limit break, you have to be more focused on the outcomes than the risks. The risks are important, but they are less important than the vision, than the goals that you're trying to achieve. Again, this one's obvious, but Derek put it best. If you ain't leading, you're losing. Andy shows us that you have to lead by example. Andy does not beat anybody over the head here with rules or with wisdom or knowledge or anything like that. Instead, he leads by learning and growing himself, and he inspires others to follow in his footsteps. We see that perfectly with Red's narrative. We also talked about how we need to look for the library and cultivate it. We've come up with this concept of the library as this bastion within the system, this foreshadowing of the ideal state within the current state that we see in all these different movies. And we liken it to a garden that we're trying to achieve. And lastly, have to leave people with this. Being Andy is hard, but it's not impossible. It's easy to get caught in the comfort of your house and your job and whatever all the other things are that you do, the trappings of a life, and watch these movies and be changed for a moment, but then come out and say, yeah, but I can't be Andy. I'm just a red. If we're on this wonder tour together, we have to have a strong conviction that Andy's exist and that we are aspiring to that greatness. All right, Brian, Derek, anything I missed here? No, moment by moment. I hope I can live in the, the Andy headspace occasionally. <laughs> it's a, It's not a... It's not a flow state that I've broken through to as a, as a lifestyle yet. But um, but yeah, anytime you have the opportunity to share that little moment of joy or share that actionable vision or just demonstrate what a limit break could look like and be open and welcoming to it is powerful. So, yeah, Derek, bring us home. What do you got? Well, there's just there's so much richness to limit breaks and so much of it happens sometimes by accident. And I want to invite anybody who's, you know, listening and considering what we've said here today as to to have that accident happen to them. I think the best recent advice I've heard is you are the average of the five people you hang out with. So think about that. How many Andes do you have in your life? How many people do you have regularly in your life that are subverting expectations of, let's just say, the gross average of perspectives out there, right? Even if you don't agree with them, even if you're left and they're right or you're right and they're left, it doesn't matter. Are they subverting expectations of what's out there? You need that. That's good medicine. Not saying you spend all your time with them, but I'm saying think about it. Think about what that means. What are they doing? Why are they doing it? Think about what drives them. And then perhaps it'll break you out of your red cycle and have you have a limit break. So that's all I got. Thanks, guys. That's awesome. Thanks so much for joining us as always, Derek. It's great to have you on the show. That's going to do it for this week. Really appreciate you, everybody, joining us. And we will see you next week as we embark upon our next series. Funny enough, next week we're going to be back to another movie that has a prison in it. We're going to be doing The Blues Brothers. We're going to look at how the classic duo of Jake and Elwood Blues tackle joy as we enter a new series on joy. Jake and Elwood really have this ability to be joyful in all circumstances. And we're going to look at why that's important and why we should add that to our repertoire as magnanimous leaders. So take it away, Brian. Just remember, as always, character is destiny.